Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Running Explained podcast. I am Elizabeth. Today, we're going to be talking about shoes, running shoes, one of my favorite, favorite subjects that I cannot get enough of. Today, we're going to be talking about a, um, well, it's not going to be a brief overview, but it is going to be what I would consider a solid introduction to the world of running shoes, talk about the history of running shoes, the different types of running shoes, and and go from there. I mean, this is a topic where you can delve into an hour-long conversation on basically any one of the features we are going to be talking about that shoes possess today. But um, shoes are really important. And one of the things that new runners are advised, you know, by very well-meaning strangers on the internet, myself included, is that when they start running, you should go and get yourself a properly fitted pair of running shoes. Go to a running shoe store and tell the person what you're looking for, you know, what you're training for, what your running history is like, and get a properly fitted pair of running shoes. And from somebody who knows what they're looking for in a running shoe, that is very good advice because you're like, oh, okay, when you know how running shoes are supposed to fit and what you're looking for, that advice makes perfect sense. If you don't know what you're looking for, if you're not even quite sure what a well-fitted pair of running shoes means, if you're genuinely not even sure what you should be looking for, we're going to talk about all of that today. And if you are somebody who knows their shoes, I mean, why wouldn't you want to just hear more about shoes? (laughs) So we are going to dive in. We're going to kind of start in the present day and move backwards a little bit and then move up to present day. So to start, I would just like to outline the three different types of running shoes, the very broad categories you find running shoes lumped together in today. You have just running shoes, road running shoes. This is the largest, most diverse category of normal running shoes. You have trail shoes, which is kind of a a hybrid running shoe slash hiking boot that has its own properties that make it suitable for trail running. And then you have spikes, uh, which are running shoes that have spikes on the bottom. You would either wear these on the track, track spikes, or wear them in a cross-country race, cross-country spikes. And that's basically the only two places or reasons why you would wear a pair of running spikes. If you did not run track or cross-country in school, you may have never put on a pair of running spikes, and that's completely normal. Do you need a pair to run on the track or to run on an outdoor grassy course? No, you don't. But uh, they are definitely what I would consider a specialized shoe. If you're interested, of course, you know, go check some out. Do you need them? No. But we're going to start with spikes because they are kind of the original innovation when it comes to the history of running shoe footwear. The earliest running specific or athletic specific footwear back in the early 1800s 
they were actually made of leather because that's what shoes were made of at the time. Uh, leather is a, a great material for a lot of things. It's not great when it's wet. <laughs> so um, in terms of when we talk about advances in shoe footwear, we're really just talking about advances in general technology. And that is going to become unbelievably apparent when we get to the present day. But uh, the original running shoe was a leather shoe. And early on for grip, you know, this was, we're talking about basically all men who were going on these runs and it was all cross country running. They weren't like running down a nice paved road because those didn't exist. Uh, for extra traction, they might hammer or um, put nails through the bottom of their leather running shoes. And these are not like, you know, cushioned shoes. This would be a thin leather shoe with nails on the bottom. And I can't imagine how uncomfortable that might be. And these were definitely shoes that are meant for shorter distances. If you learn more about the history of running, even though the marathon is technically a very old distance, you know, back dating back, back to ancient Greece, as the myth and legend goes, distance running as a sport was really uncommon up until the 20th century, and even um, the mid to later part of the 20th century. So when we talk about the history of running, for the vast majority of the history of running, we are really talking about much shorter distances, a couple miles, a couple kilometers, not people going out and running, you know, 25, 30, 40, 50 miles. Um, they're running much shorter distances. And of course, you know, I don't know that you could run 50 miles in a pair of leather shoes with nails on the bottom. So <laughs> as technology progressed and they started using rubber, so of course, first rubber that came from the rubber tree plant and then synthetically created rubber, rubber created in a lab, they found a way to put uh, the rubber on the bottom of shoes for traction and grip. And they developed what were called plimsolls. Um, they're similar to Keds or any sort of that thick rubber bottomed shoe, a slip-on shoe, or even a, you know, lace-up shoe you might see today, tree torrents, Keds, that sort of thing. The thing is, those are really heavy and they were originally developed mostly for children, a child's shoe, and then kind of co-opted by people who were into athletic sports. But like I said, they're really heavy. I mean, those really thick rubber soles. So back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, if you wanted to go for a run, you basically had two options. You had uh, a pair of plim soles, canvas sneakers with a heavy rubber bottom, or you had a track spike type shoe, which had a, a stiff leather sole and then spikes coming out of the bottom. And that was basically it. And ever since then, one of the huge pushes for innovation beyond the specialization of shoes for different activities is the drive to make these materials as light as possible while still retaining the qualities that we're looking for. Huge name to drop here, the Dassler brothers, who were brothers in Germany in the early 20th century, who the older brother, Rudolf, is the founder of Puma, the younger brother, Adolf is the founder of Adidas. There's a whole like history behind why they split. Long story short, they, and specifically the younger brother who was the father of Adidas, were the first to really create shoes that were specialized for individual distances and events within track and field and running. So they created one shoe for sprinters and another shoe, a pair of spikes that had some cushion in it for what we call middle distance runners, a shoe that was specifically meant for long jumpers. So 
this was the beginning of the specialization era that is, you know, basically where we are today, ultra specialized, different types of shoes. So it all started again with that track spike, the rubber came in and all of a sudden now we have, okay, now we're starting to get more and more minute in the differences between, you know, okay, we have a cushioned track spike for middle distance and we have a, a non-cushioned track spike for the sprinters. Because again, the, what we're trying to do is keep the shoe as light as possible while also still providing the runner what they need from the shoe. So you don't need cushioning in a track spike where you're only going to sprint 100 meters, right? But the longer distance that you run, you know, 800 meters, a mile, up and up, you need more cushioning to help protect your foot. And it's pretty amazing we talk about the cushioned shoes today versus what cushioned shoes used to be like. I know that a lot of runners looking at the shoes they wear today might look at a shoe from the 70s or 80s and think this isn't a cushioned shoe, but it was by comparison to what they were running in in the 1800s and the early 1900s. So let's continue to fast forward. Technology gets better. We start getting more specialization in materials and in different events. We start seeing innovations like not just different sizes, but different shoe widths. We start seeing that treaded bottom. So New Balance actually created a, a treaded bottom, like a wavy bottom to help improve traction. And then of course, in the seventies, we had the birth of Nike and an absolute boom in the popularity of running, distance running. The myth goes that Bill Bowerman, the founder of Nike, poured rubber into a waffle iron to create the best up until that point, the best um, textured traction surface for the bottom of the running shoe. And thus Nike was created in the billion, multi-billion dollar empire we know today. But he was onto something. I mean, it worked that there was a reason that waffle pattern bottom of a running shoe, it was lightweight, which again is something that is of ultra importance. And then soon after, Nike came up with the first air cushioned shoes. So up until not, you know, now the cushioning was made just of materials, solid materials, cushioned materials. We hadn't really developed foams yet, but with the invention of air cushioning, the cushioning craze was on. And really from there, I mean, we're off and running, no pun intended. So shoe technology just kept getting better and better. The more that we innovated, the more that we came up with new materials, different synthetic materials, different ways to make these materials lighter, smaller, to have more elastic energy return, which is, we'll talk about in a minute, a huge property of what is part of today's running shoes. And it's also important to point out that as time passes and as technology becomes available, there are certain fads that tend to come and go when it comes to things like a running shoe. And you wouldn't think that would be, you think, well, we'll just, we're just going with the best technology at the time, right? When studies come out and things become popular and books come out and other things become popular. So depending on how long you've been running, you may have noticed a shift from these ultra cushioned, air cushioned, what I would consider a maximalist shoe to the minimalist craze, all the way to uh, the barefoot running craze, and now swinging back to a super cushioned shoe. And then now I think the emphasis is more on the neutral running shoe, but the materials that we're using are getting just out of this world, uh, which is cool, but can spark some debate on whether 
it should be allowed in the sport. So that's kind of a brief history of the running shoe and how they developed. And again, this that, I mean, could be a whole entire conversation. I left out a million different things. That's okay. All you need to know is we started at one place and now we are here today. So it started with the tracks or the spike, not track spike, the cross country or track spike, which is, was really the first running specific shoe. And that's kind of all you need to know about, about track spikes, about cross country spikes. Like I said, if you've never run track or cross country, it's unlikely that you've ever put one on. It's unlikely that you ever will, unless that's something that you specifically seek out. You do not need to wear spikes if you were ever running on a track. Absolutely not. And you wouldn't ever wear spikes on a surface other than a track or a very specific cross country outdoor running course. So most of you will probably never wear them and that's totally okay. If you want to go buy a pair, feel free. I have a pair. I wear them very rarely. I bought them because I was curious. <laughs> they are indeed very, 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 I, I don't think there's any cushion in them actually. No cushioning. They have a zero drop, which we'll talk about what drop is in a second. These are definitely shoes that are only meant to be worn for a very short period of time on a very specific surface. And that's it. So for the curious, that's what a spike is. Now we're going to talk about the largest category, the running shoe itself. Different road running. And we're, this basically we're talking about is a shoe that is intended to be worn on a road or road-like surface for distance running. So for anything basically that's not a track and field event, that is not something you would run in the woods or talk about running shoes themselves. There are what I would consider several different subcategories within your broad running shoe, basic running shoe category. You have the, what I would call an everyday trainer category. You have shoes that are intended specifically for racing called racing flats. And actually that also includes the new category of carbon plate shoes. They are intended specifically for racing. And then there's kind of a weird third hybrid category where we're, again, we're talking about the ultra specialization of the types of shoes and technology available to us, which are shoes that are intended for racing or specific types of workouts, shoes that are lightweight, specifically designed to be worn, not for that everyday training, but for specific types of workouts, faster running or shorter races or even longer races. But so uh, the three categories, that everyday trainer category, that race specific shoe, and then kind of a weird hybrid category that would combine properties of both for a very specific purpose. Let's start with the everyday trainer category, which is in itself is an absolutely massive category. And let's break down what exactly a running shoe encompasses because to know the different parts and features of a running shoe is to understand how all the different ways they can be configured into the different ways that one might want to have a running shoe fit with the properties that they're looking for. So you look at a running shoe. The very first thing you'll notice is that there is an upper and a lower portion. The upper portion is what you, I would consider the actual shoe part. That's where your foot goes. The, that knit or synthetic fabric 
upper part of the shoe. And then you have the lower part, the sole, and all of the different parts of the sole. So you have your upper and you have your lower. The upper part of the shoe, and again, it's like every single feature we're going to talk about today can be, well, you could have this, or you can have that, you can have this, you can have that. Broadly, what you need to know is your upper is going to be made of some sort of lightweight synthetic material, and the upper can be thought of in three different sections moving from front to back. So the front part of your upper is called your toe box. Very simple. That's where your toes go. The mid the middle part, basically, where you, the middle of your foot, your arch lives, that's, you know, where the laces are underneath that, that's the middle part. And then, of course, the back is going to be your where your heel goes, the heel of your running shoe. Starting from front to back, the toe box. The toe box is really, really important um, because when we run, one of the things we do, even though we don't necessarily notice it because we can't see it, is that our toes do this funny little splaying out motion that is driven by the force which with which we are hitting the ground. So you need to have enough room in your toe box, not just for your foot as it rests comfortably in your shoe at rest, but also to ha- be able to accommodate your forefoot, your toe and, you know, top of foot, front of foot area when it does go through that expansion during your running gait cycle. So it's important to have a roomy toe box, and it's also important to have a shoe that is long enough to accommodate the natural movement of your foot forward and backwards. A lot of people size up at least a half a size, sometimes a full size from their street running shoes. For example, I wear an eight and a half, eight, eight and a half in most like everyday shoes, not that I wear them anymore, but uh, in my running shoes, I am always at least a nine. If you often find yourself like your toenails are getting bruised or blackened, if you're losing toenails, if your toes are sore, it could be that your shoes are too short and your toe is toes are hitting the front of your shoe or the top front of your shoe. It doesn't necessarily need to be the actual front of your shoe, but can also be the, the top front of your shoe and accumulating what are called micro traumas. But like with all things in running, we hit the ground so many times when we're out for a run that once is not an issue, 10,000 times it becomes an issue. I have lost exactly one toenail from running in my entire life. And this is because I wore a pair of race shoes that I didn't know were going to be an issue for me until I hit about mile... Well, I think it was like mile 18 or 20. And at that point, my feet had swollen enough because your feet will swell over longer distances like that, such that what was not a problem earlier on became a problem later on. So it's always very important to have a shoe that has enough room in your toe box from side to side, and also a shoe in general that is long enough front to back. This is why part of going and getting fitted for what we call a properly fitted pair of running shoes, part of that means getting shoes that are sized correctly for your feet, left to their own devices. Some people have some very strange conceptions about what size they think they should be wearing. And I don't know where this started, but like, look, it doesn't matter what size your shoe is. Just please make sure it fits. You need your shoe 
to have enough room for your foot to go through the entire range of motion it needs to go through without being impeded because otherwise you can get things like those bruised toenails, you can get blisters, or on the very extreme end, if you have a pair of running shoes that's genuinely the wrong size for you, you can actually develop bizarre injuries because your foot is moving in an unnatural way. So toe box, very important. In general, there are brands, well, most brands will offer what we call their common or their most popular everyday trainer models in a variety of sizes. So narrow, medium, wide sizes. And some brands also tend to run more narrow than others. This is why part of going and getting a properly fitted pair of running shoes involves just trying a bunch of shoes on because you can try, let's say four different running shoes from four different brands. And even though the features of each running shoe are the same on paper, they have the same cushioning, they have the same heel drop, they have the same stack height, they're the same size, they have the same weight, but they're each going to fit you differently because each shoe in each brand is just a little bit different and your feet are a little bit different from everybody else's feet. So this is why it can be really hard to take shoe advice or recommendation from other people. Not to say that you can't. And there is a reason that there are shoes, models, brands that are popular because they fit a wide variety of foot and people in general tend to be happy with them. But there is no such thing as one shoe that's going to fit everybody perfectly. That's part of why it's so great that there's so much available to us, but sometimes because there are so many choices, if you don't really know what you're looking for, it can get overwhelming. Moving on back to the back of the upper part of the shoe where your heel lives, where you have what's called your heel collar, which is if you look around the collar of where your foot, you know, your ankle is in the shoe, in the back, you might have a little like humped up piece on the very back of the collar, that's called the heel collar. And below that is what's called the heel counter. So if you have an exceptionally narrow heel, you may have a little bit more trouble finding shoes that fit you properly so that your heel doesn't slip around. Uh, If you have, depending on the shape of your foot and your ankle, you may find that in some shoes, the heel collar actually digs into your skin. That's That's not a good thing. You don't ever want that to, you know, dig into your skin. In general, if you put a shoe on and it's immediately uncomfortable, that is not the shoe for you. You can get shoes with what are called knit collars. So instead of having the traditional, you know, upholstered, I don't know what else you would call it, but it's a stiff, you know, a formed collar, you can get what's called a knit collar, which is, you might see them. It looks weird. It looks like you've, um, their sock kind of comes all the way up to the top of the shoe and that's a knit collar. So there are not as many stiff pieces in that. So if you have a really hard time finding a shoe with a collar that doesn't dig into your foot, a shoe with a knit upper and a knit collar, or, you know, it looks like the collar of a sweater, but it's around your ankle. Broadly, I mean, that's, that's your upper, right? So in terms of the fit and the form and the function, the major differences between the different uppers of your shoe are basically going to be 
materials and fit. And a lot of this just comes down to personal preference, right? So you have your toe box area, you have your midfoot area, you have your heel area. The materials a shoe would be made from, again, range from that knit material, like it literally looks it like it's knit, to more traditional, I don't even know what you call it, like normal synthetic <laughs> material. Like when you look at a running shoe, you're like, yeah, that looks like a running shoe. It looks like a normal running shoe. To super lightweight, almost parachute material, it's this incredibly, incredibly lightweight, uh, translucent almost material, synthetic material that we made. And th those are specifically, the, I have a pair of the uh, Nike Vaporflies and those have that material in the upper. It's the same material that my hydration pack is made from. It's so cool. So um, th that is definitely what we call a specialty shoe. Not an everyday trainer. I don't think that you might, would find an everyday trainer that contains that type of material. So really we're talking about just different, normal different types of synthetic fabrics. And again, you really do need to go and try these shoes on to make sure that they are fitting your foot the way that they're supposed to be fitting. Now we're gonna talk about the fun stuff. We're gonna talk about the lower, talk about the sole. And this is where, I mean, the upper, yeah, yes, people have opinions about the upper. That's usually not what makes or breaks a running shoe in terms of whether you like it or not. What we're gonna really talk about are the features that belong to the lower part of the shoe, the sole. The first thing we're gonna talk about is what's called the stack height. The stack height is the total height of the sole. So the sole itself in almost every running shoe is comprised of multiple different layers bonded together, but collectively they create the sole. And the total height of the sole, the sole at its highest height, <laughs> that's called the stack height. Now, in the past, it was hard to have a shoe with a very high stack height that also wasn't incredibly heavy. So we really didn't see shoes with very high stack heights because it made the shoe so almost unusably heavy. And with innovations in materials now, what we're seeing is that we're able to make materials so light that we can create these shoes that have a large stack height and they're not overly heavy. They are expensive, but they're not overly heavy. So shoes with a high stack height tend to be highly cushioned shoes. So cushioning we'll talk about in a minute, but also when you have a higher stack height, you can fit more stuff in between your foot and the ground. And one of the properties of today's running shoes, one of the essential components of today's running shoes are foam and in some cases, carbon or nylon plates. But the key feature here is the foam. What's the deal with the foam? Today's foam is unbelievable. Each running shoe company has their own super secret, highly you know, patented, classified foam. When we talk about the pro what foam does in a running shoe, let's go back and talk about how, how your body works when you run. In a very simplified way, your lower legs basically act like springs. And we're gonna talk about something called elastic energy return, the principle of elastic energy return. Whenever you hit the ground, and with a mini physics lesson here, uh, remember that energy is neither created nor destroyed, it's just transferred. It's the first law of thermodynamics, the law of conservation of energy, right? So whenever your foot hits the ground, 
the force with which it hits the ground, that is energy. And so the energy that exists in each foot strike, it doesn't disappear, it just goes different places. So part of it, yes, is absorbed by the ground, transferred into the ground. Part of it is stored in your lower legs, your Achilles tendon, it acts like a giant rubber band. So it's stored in your legs that act like springs. And that when you continue through your running gait cycle, that energy is then released, right? So it doesn't go anywhere. It's just stored and released. And that is the elastic energy return we're talking about. When your legs act like springs, you hit the ground, some of the energy is you know, transferred into the ground. You do lose it. You don't capture 100% of the energy, <laughs> but... A lot of the energy is stored in your legs. They act like springs and is returned to you as you continue running each footstep over and over and over again. The thing is that the running shoe foams that we were talking about today, we talk about the principles of elastic energy return. The running shoe foam aims to capture as much of that energy which would otherwise just be transferred into the ground and help you to store and return it through the shoe foam itself. So it's basically an assist, a little elastic energy boost, if you will. So rather than when you hit the ground, if you're running barefoot with nothing between you and the ground, you are going to have some energy that is transferred to the ground and lost forever. However, if you had something between you and the ground to help absorb and store and then return that energy to you, boom, there you go. That's a boost. That's some energy that you would have otherwise lost that has now been returned to you and you can use it with each footstep. Kind of cool, right? So the foams that we're talking about today's ultra futuristic, ultra cool, technologically speaking, foams have very high principles of elastic energy return, where they are able to store and return larger quantities of energy to you with each footstep while also being exceptionally lightweight. Because in the past, these foams or these rubbers or these materials that were able to have really good elastic energy return principles also tend to be very heavy. I don't know if you guys remember getting a Super Bowl, those little red rubber balls that basically were ultra bouncy, right? I also don't remember if you remember holding them in your hand for their size, they were relatively heavy. Imagine having a shoe made of that. That would be a very, very heavy shoe. But with the way that foams are created today, they are ultra light while also maintaining those very cool principles of being able to store and return energy to you. So that's the foam. Most of the sole of your running shoe is going to be made up of one or more different types of foam that serves different types of purposes. So the majority of the foam of the sole of your running shoe is going to be what's called the mid sole. This is where a lot of that cushion comes in. In general, a higher stack height tends to mean you have more cushioning. And there are a variety of reasons why you would want more or less cushioning, some having to do with just personal preference and comfort, some having to do with the properties of the shoe. Shoes are mostly divided into what we will call low, medium, and high cushioning or plush cushioning shoes. 
On the low cushioning end of the spectrum, you have shoes that are have a relatively low stack height and offer very little in terms of cushioning between you and the ground. So you're going to, some people really like this because it means you can feel the ground more, you can be more responsive to the ground. These might also be known as a minimalist running shoe. Some people, like I said, some people hate it. Some people love it. Most people though find that a low level cushioning is not a great choice. Like I said, totally depends on personal preference. However, in general, people who are running long distances, training for long distance races may have trouble with a super low cushion shoe. And again, if I get a DM saying, I run hundred miles a week and I wear Nike freeze, like, cool. You are the outlier. <laughs> you are not the norm. Like I said, it is a personal preference. However, most people who are really running longer distances are probably not going to gravitate towards a low cushioned shoe. The vast majority of shoes that are currently available on the market are somewhere between a moderately and a highly cushioned shoe. And again, this is thanks to the innovations in technology that have allowed us to add more cushioning without necessarily adding a whole bunch more weight. Most of the everyday trainers available are going to be somewhere in that moderate cushioning to high cushioning, super plush. Some brands are known for their cushioning more than others. And then each brand individually within each brand, each brand always has multiple different models of shoes that have a different combination of features like different levels of cushioning, different heel drops, different, whether it's a neutral or a stability shoe we'll talk about in a second here. So you can get a moderate or a highly cushioned shoe, depending on your preferences with other configurations based on your needs. And again, the cushioning really does come down to personal preference. The one thing to keep in mind is that even with the advancements in technology, unless you're buying a very expensive racing specific shoe for a normal everyday trainer, the more cushion it has, the heavier it's going to be. And we are talking about like an ounce or two. You may notice, you may not. In general though, a more highly cushioned shoe, a shoe that has more material in it for whatever reason, because it's a cushioned shoe or because it's a stability shoe, that's just going to be a slightly heavier shoe. Now it might be only a little bit heavier. It might be a lot heavier. You may not notice at all. You may notice a lot. Again, another reason it's important to go and try these shoes on. That's your level of cushioning. It does tend to be related to stack height. And we'll talk a bit about the legality of certain stack heights in terms of what's available now and when we get to racing specific shoes, but the next thing we're going to talk about is something called heel drop. Heel drop is, it's kind of the heel height, but it's the heel height difference. So it's a difference between the, when you're looking at the insole of the shoe, where your heel is, how high your heel is off the ground, compared to how high your forefoot or your toes are off the ground, measured in millimeters. Now, this is where it starts to get confusing or complicated in terms of the configuration of shoes available because you can have a shoe that has a very high stack height with no drop, with a zero millimeter drop. So this means that when you put on this shoe with a large amount of stack height, a large cushion, inside the shoe, 
your heel and your toe are on an even plane. This is not as common. Mostly you will see shoes. So zero drop shoes, are like a whole category in and of themselves. Most running shoes are available in the no, not most running shoes are available. The most commonly available heel drops are no drop. So that zero millimeter drop, low drop, two to four millimeter drop. And then you have mid and then high. So a mid heel drop would be something around eight millimeters, maybe up to 10 and then over 10 millimeters, 10, 12, 13 millimeter heel drop. That is what's called a high heel drop. That difference between your heel and your toe in the shoe itself. And that is a totally different measurement, a different feature than stack height is. I just did a post about heel drop recently. One is not necessarily better than the other. It all comes down to personal preference. And I cannot stress this enough, what your body is used to. I don't think people understand how the difference in millimeters can create such a huge effect, but it can. Again, everything when running, it's magnified. Take one step in it, not a big deal. Take 10,000 in it, okay, suddenly it's a big deal. We talk about how it can be good to have several different running shoes in your rotation for a variety of reasons. One of which is just it works slightly different muscles and stability bits in your body and that's good, but you don't want the difference between your shoes to be too drastic. Or if you're going from one pair of shoes, you buy a new pair of shoes and all of a sudden you're going from a 12 millimeter heel drop to a four millimeter heel drop, you're gonna have problems. It's not necessarily the heel drop that's the issue, it's that you did something too drastic for your body to be able to adjust to. Yes, you can absolutely move from one heel drop to another, However, it's important to do it slowly and to kind of taper it in, right? So if for whatever reason you were trying to go to a lower heel drop shoe from a higher heel drop shoe, you would do something like buy a heel drop in the middle and then slowly incorporate those new shoes and slowly phase out the higher drop shoes. Now you're in your mid drop shoe and then you buy your lower drop shoes and slowly incorporate those in and slowly phase out your middle drop shoes. So, I mean, over the course of weeks or months, depending on what your body is used to. In general, people who have Achilles or calf issues tend to do better in a higher drop shoe. Eight millimeters, 10 millimeters, 12 millimeters, I think, Brooks might even have a model that's like 14 millimeters. That's, that's an exceptionally high heel drop. People who are trying to promote better, what we call dorsiflexion, ankle flexion, the up and down kind of flexion movement that your foot makes, that can be um, better facilitated by a lower drop shoe. But like I said, ultimately it does come down to personal preference. One is not better than the other. The important thing to make sure of is that you're not doing drastic changes in your heel drop too suddenly. In general, if you find a heel drop that works for you, I say stick with it. I mean, this is this can be one of the things in running in general that I notice is that people instead of finding something that works for them and being comfortable with it, they are continually looking for something that's going to make things even better. And sometimes just the act of making those changes can make things worse. So I'm not here to tell you that you're going to find the perfect running shoe. You might, I know, you might find the perfect running shoe, but what we're not, we're looking for, it's not the perfect running shoe. We're looking for a running shoe that is 
very good for us. So just because you are in a, a shoe that has a certain configuration of characteristics, great, stick with it. That's great. Wear it until it doesn't work for you anymore. And you might be wearing the same shoes or the same model of shoes for years. There are so many other variables that we need to consider when we're going through our training, all the things that we need to keep track of. Like, don't give yourself one more headache. I am firmly of the belief that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you find a pair of shoes that works for you, just keep wearing those shoes. Just keep wearing those shoes. Buy another pair of the exact same model. We're talking about models and model differences in a minute, but like, that's just my general advice. Don't overcomplicate it. If you find a pair of running shoes that works for you, and yeah, it might take a couple pairs, don't mess with it. Just be like, great, one less thing I have to worry about. I found shoes that work for me. So we talked about cushion. We've talked about foam. We've talked about heel height, heel drop. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The other characteristic we're going to talk about is whether it's a neutral or a stability or a motion control shoe. What does this mean? What is a neutral shoe? What is a stability or a motion control shoe? When I talked before about you know, running shoes being subject to the trends of the time, stability shoes definitely fell into that category. It was very, very fashionable some time ago, I wanna say in the early 2000s. For stability shoes, they were the reigning type of shoe on the market. So the stability shoe, it was kind of assumed for a while, again, the way that these trends go, that after studying you know, pronation, there's this big like scare about everybody's overpronating. Everybody needs to be in a stability shoe because part of what a stability shoe is it corrects or restrains the movement of your foot to prevent that overpronating or oversupinating motion. And it's something wild, like 75% of runners in the early 2000s reported that they wore a stability shoe, a shoe that had stability or motion control properties. And thankfully, I have to say, that seems to have become fallen far out of vogue, that stability shoes are, of course, still available. They're still appropriate for a certain subset of runners. But the notion or the belief that we need to forcibly control the movement of our foot through our shoe is uh, thing I'm just I'm glad it's gone because as we have learned, it is very, very normal through the uh, range of motion that your foot goes through during the running gait cycle as your foot strikes the ground, some degree of pronation, some degree of supination, either or depending on how your specific foot and body work, it is completely normal. Everybody pronates or supinates to some degree. If you have a problem with extreme overpronation or extreme supination, in many cases, that can be corrected by doing strengthening and mobility exercises. However, that doesn't work for everybody. And like I said, there is still a subset of runners for whom a stability or a motion control shoe is definitely the right choice. 
But from what we know about how our physiology and biomechanics work now, for the majority of runners, a neutral shoe is usually the best option for them. So what is a neutral shoe compared to a stability or motion control shoe? A neutral shoe contains no features that are intended to control, guide, or limit the natural pronation or supination movement of the foot. Wait, what? <laughs> Basically, in a neutral shoe, you have all the features that we just, you know, talked about. You have your different stack height, you have your different cushioning level, you have your different heel drops, but it lets your foot move naturally through the gait cycle without trying to force it either, you know, to roll in or to roll out or prevent it from doing so. A stability or a motion control shoe, a stability shoe has, I would consider, you know, moderate characteristics of trying to control that uh, pronation or supination mo movement of the foot. A motion control shoe is like, I mean, your foot's basically in lockdown. Like it, don't, it can only move in, in the direction the shoe tells that it can move. Uh, and this, like I said, this can be beneficial for a certain subset of runners. However, the way we know about how our foot works, how the muscles in our foot and our lower legs work is that if you are wearing a shoe that inhibits the activation of those muscles, right? So if you are wearing a stability shoe with the intention, you know what, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna tell you a story about me. When I first started running, I, like many new runners, developed shin splints and knee pain because I went from running zero miles a week to running 25 miles a week in like a month. That's a big jump. And I fell prey to the very, very common injuries that new runners who increase their mileage too quickly experience, these common overuse injuries. Well, I, and at the time, here's the thing. I had been running in an old pair of Nike shoes. I think they were Nike Freeze. We talked about those minimal cushioning. I'm not quite sure. I think they have a very minimal heel drop. Uh, they were not an appropriate shoe for me then. They're still not appropriate shoe for me now. But I had been running in these shoes that I had found in my closet and I had developed these pains, these common overuse too much too soon, too much too quickly injuries that many new runners develop, but I attributed it to the shoes. I also, I have very high arches. That's how my foot is shaped. I thought, well, this shoe does not have enough arch support. Therefore, when I run, my arches are collapsing and I need a stability shoe to help force my foot to behave the way it's supposed to be. Now, I was going to develop these injuries no matter what shoe I was running in because it wasn't the shoe. The shoe, yeah, the shoe contributed to it, but the shoe didn't cause it. What caused these injuries in me as a new runner, that ankle pain, inner ankle pain, shin splints, knee pain, was by running too much mileage faster than my body could adjust to it. Too much, too quickly, too much, too soon. That's what caused these injuries. I, I would have developed them irrespective of whatever pair of shoes I was running in. However, I was wearing a very specific minimalist pair of shoes. So when I went to the running shoe store, I had done my research on the Google machine and I asked for a pair of stability running shoes. I said, I have developed shin splints, ankle pain, and knee pain. I have very high arches. I would specifically like a pair of stability running shoes. And they nicely sold me a pair of stability running shoes. They fit 
very well. Uh, they were a fine shoe, compared, you know, relatively speaking. They were a hell of a lot better than the ones I had been running in. And as I ran more and I, you know, had started to incorporate other things in my running and strength training and what have you, I magically got over those injuries, developed other set of injuries later on, but those were unrelated to my shoes. Anyways, long story short, I looked at the situation I was in. I made an assumption about what I thought I needed and I ran in stability shoes, a couple different brands for, I want to say a first year or so of my running until I went in and I was looking for a change. I didn't love, this is, okay, here's a tangent. Running shoe companies like to come out with new models all the time because yes, they are constantly innovating, which is very, very cool. But this means that even if you fall in love with a specific model and version of a shoe, it's going to disappear in, I don't know, every 12 to 18 months is when they typically release new models of established or, you know, new versions of established models. So if you're shopping for a running shoe and you see it's, you know, brand model version 14, that means this is the 14th version of that model. And the characteristics of the model don't tend to change. The level of cushioning, the heel drop, the whether it's a stability or a neutral shoe, those things stay the same, but they do tweak things in the shoe itself, like the materials that they use as they innovate. They may mess with the placement of the tongue or maybe what the upper is made of or just all these little things as they're innovating. Sometimes these changes are great. And you might say, gosh, I like this new model even better. Sometimes you might hate it. <laughs> Sometimes you might put it on and say, God, you know what? I really, I dislike this new version. I need to find a new shoe. And that is what had happened to me. I was wearing a stability shoe and they came out with a new version and I tried it on and I, I just genuinely didn't like the way it fit my foot. It felt funny or weird. And so I was like, you know, okay, I'm going to try another pair of shoes. So the person I was working with at the running shoe store had me walk. You may, if you go to a running shoe store, they may have you run on a treadmill. What they do at the shoe store I was at was they just have you walk barefoot and they observe how your foot naturally rolls through, you know, it's normal walking motion. And he looked at me and he said, you need a neutral shoe. Is there a reason you're in stability shoes? And I said, well, you know, I, I had knee pain when I started running and I had shin splints. And he said, yes, but what's the reason you're in a stability shoe? And I said, well, because I, I had knee pain and I had shin splints. He said, but do you have those now? I said, no. He said, okay, well, let's put you in a neutral shoe and see what you think. So I tried on some neutral shoes and long story short, I've been in a neutral shoe ever since. The problem with being in a stability shoe when you don't need one is that as you've listened to any of the episodes that I've had, especially the ones with physical therapists talking about if you don't use it, you lose it when it comes to muscular strength. So if we are putting ourselves in a stability shoe, hoping that it will fix whatever injury that we're dealing with, uh, which I'll be 100% honest with you, most injuries, common running injuries when it comes to runners stem from not the shoes, stems from muscle imbalances, muscle weaknesses, and or mobility issues somewhere up the chain. Somewhere up the chain, whether it's, you know, in your quads, hamstrings, hips, glutes, core, 
somewhere, you know, calves, ankle strength. It is somewhere else in your body that there is a weakness or an imbalance between your right and left side, like, oh, my left quad's stronger than my right quad, or, and, or some sort of mobility issue, limited mobility, limited range of motion as you're going through the movement of your joint. That is what's causing the injury. Rarely, rarely is it actually the shoes. It's not to say that shoes can't contribute to injury, but, and it's not to say that shoes can't cause injury because they can, the wrong shoes definitely can. But my point is that if you are experiencing some sort of running injury, a common running injury, like runner's knee or shin splints or plantar fasciitis or whatever the injury is, first of all, that sucks and I'm sorry. Second of all, if you think that going to a stability shoe is going to be the cure, I would, I would really be careful before making that decision because when you are wearing a shoe that intentionally restricts the range of motion and controls the movement of what your foot can and cannot do, you are automatically not engaging certain muscles in your foot, lower leg, posterior chain, And when you don't use muscles, they don't get stronger. So you may find that you put on a stability shoe and in the short term, maybe whatever the injury is goes away just because of a combination of you wearing a different shoe and maybe you're moving slightly differently and whatever it is. But in the long term, you're not doing yourself any favors because you're not strengthening the muscles that you need to strengthen. So that is my pitch about being very cautious when you are trying to get a stability shoe, helping, hoping that it will help prevent injury. Like I said, for many new runners or any runner who is increasing their mileage too fast for their body to handle, the shoes are not going to fix that. The shoes are not going to prevent shin splints. You have shin splints because you're running too much too quickly. You have increased your weekly distance, you are running more than your body can handle. That is why you are experiencing those injuries, not because of the shoes. And the shoes are not going to fix it. Like I said, stability shoes are appropriate for some runners, though. Who would a stability shoe or a motion control shoe be good for? In general, people who have flat feet or very low arches may benefit from a stability or a motion control shoe. And I mean, in terms of the the general population of who that is recommended for, that's kind of it. Like, you know, it does come down to personal preference, like I said, but in terms of there being like a single category or a certain characteristic of person who would specifically usually benefit from a stability or motion control shoe, that is going to be a person who has very low arches or very flat feet. And you can don't necessarily have to even get a stability or motion control shoe. You might be able to buy a neutral shoe and then have some sort of stability or motion control insole. If that is the case, first of all, a note about insoles. Don't buy them when you buy your shoes from the running shoe store people. You should run in your shoes first for a while and then decide whether or not you might need an insole especially for people who are newer runners or don't necessarily know what they're looking for in a running shoe. Insoles, it's not a scam. It's not, but it can be. (laughs) There are people who genuinely benefit from wearing an insole of one kind or another. However, 
I would really want you to get to know how your foot works, how your feet operate in the shoes before you then go put an insole in them. It can feel sometimes, I know if you're walking into a shoe store for the first time, it can be overwhelming. If you're trying on a pair of running shoes and you don't genuinely know what you're looking for and the salesperson is looking at you and saying, now this feels better with the insole in them, right? And you're nodding along and thinking, yeah, you don't have to buy the insoles. It's okay. It's okay to just buy the shoes and also it will be easier on your wallet. There are so many different shoes available out there for you that it is far more likely you will find the right shoe that doesn't need an insole than you would like buy a mediocre for you shoe and then spend the extra money on the insole. Like I said, not to say that nobody needs insoles, but far fewer of you need insoles than you probably might think. So when you're shopping for a running shoe, these are really the characteristics you want to look at aside from, you know, how the actual shoe fits and feels on your foot, your toe box width, whether the heel tabs digging into the back of your heel, you want to look at the level of cushioning. You want to look at the heel drop. You want to look at whether it's a neutral or a motion control or stability shoe. And the last feature of a normal running shoe that doesn't really make any difference. It's the outsole. It's the actual bottom of the running shoe, uh, which is different from the midsole. The outsole is the what touches the road. It's when the rubber meets the road. It's the bottom of your shoe. It's going to be treaded in specific ways. It's going to have whatever proprietary pattern. It's usually going to be completely appropriate for the surface of road running. It's or sidewalks, whatever it is that you run on that is a normal outdoor pavement-esque running shoe, right? So that's your outsole. Some brands tend to be more durable than others. However, it also depends on the surface that you're running on. If you are running on textured concrete sidewalks versus a treadmill, one of those outsoles is going to wear much faster than the others. And that brings me to my last point about the life of running shoes. The general recommendation is that you change or, you know, get a new pair of shoes every 300 to 500 miles, about every 500 to 800 kilometers. Now, there is some truth to this. You cannot, well, you can, again, you can wear your running shoes until they literally fall off your feet. However, it's important to note that as you wear your shoe, as you wear in your shoe, it will start to compress or to change just over the course of the distance that you're running. Over the hundreds of miles, the hundreds of kilometers that you're running in this shoe, the shoe will morph, deform, you know, change just enough where you may notice as the shoe ages, it is wearing differently than it used to. And something you may notice on older shoes is you're getting blisters in places you didn't get blisters when they were new. This is because the shoe has just changed shape enough so that it's rubbing in different places. Something else you may notice, we talked about that foam and the elastic energy return. Well, foam is kind of like chewing gum, right? It does get stale. It does compress over time eventually. And it also does degrade. Some of these foams will degrade faster than others. Uh, Again, so again, it does depend on the company, does depend on the model itself. 
you may find a pair of shoes that you are very comfortable wearing upwards of 500 miles or 800 kilometers. You may find a pair of shoes starts to wear out around 250 miles or, you know, 400 kilometers. It just depends. And yeah, it can suck to figure out that the pair of shoes you just spent $140 on only lasts you 250 miles. For some people, that might be a month of running. But that's all part of the trial and error process. So in terms of tips for shoes, uh, when you are going in, you do want the shoe, when you put it on your foot, you want the shoe to be immediately comfortable. You do. You, but more than anything else, as soon as you put the shoe on, it should feel comfortable. Don't overthink it. This is why trying on multiple pairs of shoes in one trip is very beneficial because you have something to compare them to, right? Put one on one foot, the other on the other foot. Compare them. It should feel immediately comfortable. Nothing should be digging in or hitting you in a weird place. You shouldn't feel you know, the shoe in any one spot. You should have plenty of room for your toes in both the sides and the front. It should feel like a comfortable shoe. Now, most running shoe stores will also let you either, they will have a treadmill in the store that you can run on, or you can go for a little run outside. Again, don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Does it feel comfortable or not? It's okay for it not to feel comfortable. Okay. It's also okay to go into a running shoe store and say you have a budget and I will give you a ballpark of what shoes cost on the lower end of the shoe price spectrum. The normal everyday trainers can be around $120, $130 US. The more materials involved in the shoe, the more expensive they become. Stability and motion control shoes tend to be $160-ish, $150, $160-ish. And then when we talk about specialty shoes, those can be upwards of $200. But in terms of an everyday trainer, you're probably looking at the retail price of between $120 and $160 for a pair of shoes. Of course, you want these shoes to be comfortable. You want them to last. One of the things I like to do, because I do go through shoes relatively quickly, is that I like to, when I, and I'm able to do this, and I understand that I'm fortunate enough to do this, is that, like I said, when the new models, the new versions of the model that I like come out, the old ones go on sale. And so I buy them on sale in bulk. So yes, I am still working my way through a pair of shoes that are two, no, three versions old at this point. But if you know what you're looking for, you can find, depending on how hard you're willing to search and how common your shoe size is, you can find shoes for 30, 40% half off if, you know, sometimes on the resale sites, not used shoes, but shoes like um, sites that it will sell old stock so that's one way to kind of keep your shoe costs down. Other than that, I this is just part of running. It's important for you to have a pair of shoes that fits you correctly because a pair of improperly fitting running shoes will hurt you, whether it just blisters, whether bruised toenails, whether is it fits, you know, your foot incorrectly, if it's too big or too small, it can cause weird things to happen to your feet and your running gait. Another question I've gotten sometimes about running shoes is that um, about toe or foot numbness or a burning sensation on the bottom of your feet. Those are all signs of something neurological and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that there's nerve involvement somewhere. So a burning sensation in the bottom of your feet is not normal. It's probably not an allergic reaction, right? It's probably somewhere to do 
somewhere a nerve somewhere in your body is basically getting pinched or otherwise interfered with and it's sending that burning sensation to your brain and says the bottom your feet are on fire. Now, that's not normal. And I would revise that if it doesn't go away, maybe it's just like brand new shoes and as soon as you break them in after a mile or two, they're fine. However, if it persists, return them. Running shoes that cause numbness in your foot or in part in your toes. One, make sure you're not tying your shoes too tightly. Yes, you can tie your shoes so tight that you either cut off, you know, impinge on a nerve, cut off circulation, can cause other issues. But again, we're talking about nerve involvement somewhere, not necessarily in your foot, but maybe in your foot somewhere, a nerve is getting compressed or impinged upon such that it's making your foot or your toes go numb. It might be completely unrelated to your shoes. It might be related to somewhere else in your musculature or the way that you move in general. Whenever there's an issue with a shoe and somebody says, my shoes are causing this issue, is this normal? And for most of my answers, the question is like, well, no, it's not normal. If you're asking me a question about this, it's not normal. But my follow-up question is always gonna be, does this happen in any other pair of shoes? And if the answer is no, then it's the shoes. If the answer is yes, then it's you. So that's kind of an easy way to tell. (laughs) If it happens in all your shoes, it's a you issue. If it happens in this one pair of shoes, that's a shoe issue, and that's good to know. Now we're gonna do a brief foray into specialty racing shoes and then finish up with a little bit about trail shoes. So you, unless you've been living under a rock, have maybe heard about carbon plate shoes. This is the next big, well, I guess it's been around for a couple years now, innovation in running shoe technology, where in your midsole, buried in between those layers of that elastic energy return foam, some, well, most at this point, running, running shoe companies, starting with Nike, started inserting a carbon plate that assists, again, with that elastic energy return. Carbon is carbon plate, carbon fiber is what we're supposed to talk about. Carbon fiber is a ultra light, ultra strong material that when you, in these shoes, it, it, it acts like a spring. It, it is an unbelievable feature that helps propel, store and return energy in a way that propels you forward there are some people who think that it's cheating, that it's basically like running on springs. There are some people who don't care. There are some people who enjoy it and just say that it's just kind of the next phase of where the innovation is headed technology-wise. These shoes have definitely not been without controversy. Um, and one of the, well, besides the carbon plate inclusion. Another point of controversy has been the stack height of several models, specifically the Nike Alpha Fly. Next percent, it has a ridiculous, unbelievably tall stack height of something like 40 millimeters, which is just huge. They're very, very, very tall. And again, this has to do with how much material they can cram in there that will help with the elastic energy return principle. So the powers that be who sanction and, and control what you can and cannot wear in competition have put a limit on the stack height of the shoe. I think the alpha fly barely squeaks in underneath. So it's something to consider. The thing is that these shoes are also very expensive. These are very, very expensive shoes. Even the 
models that are coming out that I know Saucony has their um, Endorphin Speed, which is an, has a nylon plate shoe uh, in the shoe rather than a carbon plate. It's a little bit less expensive. And by less expensive, I mean it's still $200. Um, carbon plate shoes range from $200 to $250 to $300, like depending on if you can even get them in your country and your size. Do you need these shoes to race? No, you do not. You do not. Please do not think that if you're going to run a marathon, you need to go out and buy a pair of these carbon plate shoes because you don't. One, they fit everybody differently, right? So back when there was only one option, you the Vaporfly, you either wore it and liked it or you wore it and hated it. And that was it. There are more options to available today from most brands have a carbon plate shoe available if you are interested and have the money. Sure, try it out. You'll probably have the best luck with the brand for whom you already wear their normal shoes in your everyday training. So if you are a Saucony person, you'll probably like the Endorphin Pro. If you are a Hoka person, you'll probably like the the Rocket X. If you're an Adidas person, I think the Adios Pro is their carbon plate shoe. Uh, so I mean, there you definitely have options if you are interested in a carbon plate shoe. But again, do you need them? No. Are they beneficial at shorter distances? Like if, can you wear them during a, a 5K? Sure, maybe. It depends on, there is some evidence that the best return is really over distance. So they may help you, like don't buy them if you're just gonna run a, a 5K, I guess what I'm saying. Like you can, I'm not gonna tell you what to buy or not to buy. If you wanna buy a pair, go ahead and do that. A carbon plate shoe is probably going to be most beneficial to you over distance because of the way that the elastic energy return principles are or operate within how the shoe is designed. But again, you can do whatever you want. Do you need them? No. <laughs> are they fun to have? Yes, they can be. <laughs> Another thing to note is that sometimes these ultra lightweight, ultra expensive shoes may not last quite as long as the normal everyday trainers. And that can be a bummer when you're spending $250 on a pair of shoes and they last precisely two and a half races. So something to keep in mind, running is expensive enough without having to buy an extra pair of shoes that can be somebody's grocery budget. I get it. So again, please do not think you need to buy them. Please do not think that you are any less of a runner because you're not interested in them or can't afford them. They are a crazy expense for the average, or for most people, honestly. In a time when race entry fees, especially for these larger races, and just gear in general, everything is getting so expensive. And like, yes, part of it's it's cool to see on one level because we're really innovating when it comes to the materials and the technology available to us. Like, yes. I want to see the most amazing stuff out there, but I also want to be able to afford it. And some of this stuff, it's important to know when you're prioritizing where to put your dollars, getting a pair or two pairs even for the price of one pair of carbon plate shoes, your everyday running shoes are the one of the most important things you can spend your money on as a runner. You can run in any old clothes, as long as they're not cotton. Please don't run in cotton. But what you wear to run in, the things, you know, do you need fancy gels? No. Do you need fancy supplements? No. The shoes, the shoes are really important to get right. So in terms of allocating your budget for your running expenses, 
I would prioritize your shoes, a good pair of running shoes that fits you well and meets your needs. That is one of the best things you can spend your money on hands down. And I feel like I could continue talking forever, but unfortunately I can't, but we're going to close up really quickly with a brief note about trail shoes. Trail shoes are basically if a running shoe and a hiking boot had a baby and they made a trail shoe and you can buy a trail shoe again, has a lot of similar available characteristics as a normal running shoe does in terms of what the heel drop is. In terms of cushioning, you're probably not going to find an ultra cushioned trail shoe, although they do exist. Uh, trail shoes in general tend to be made of a lot more durable materials. They tend to come in materials or configurations that are water resistant or waterproof sometimes. The biggest difference between a trail shoe and a normal running shoe is going to be that outsole, that bottom part, the actual where the rubber, like I said, hits the road. Unlike a normal running shoe where it has, you know, it has treads, but it's not like it's, it's just a shoe. Your trail shoe has what we call lugs, <laughs> deep treads, deep grippy treads. And that's because you're out in the woods, you're on a trail. The other thing about trail shoes is that they are coated. Their outsole material is coated with a um, polymer, whatever proprietary material that each company uses that is usually designed to get sticky when it gets wet. So this is especially useful if you're scrambling over wet rocks instead of a normal shoe. If you wore it out in the woods would slip on those slick surfaces, a trail shoe is actually going to help you grip onto those surfaces. And that's very important when it comes to your safety and your well-being when you're out in the woods. So trail shoes, do you need them? Again, it's one of those things that depends on what you're running, how much you're running in the trails, what types of trails that you're running. Trail running can be a really like a wide range of things. We can anywhere from really nice, buffed, smooth dirt paths that are nicer than some of the roads that I run on all the way to you're basically hiking, but you're trying to run and it's rocks and it's wet and it's, you know, barely a path. So it depends on what your specifically, what your specific trail like conditions are. So if you spend a lot of time in the woods, if you find that you're spending a lot of time in the woods, first of all, you don't need a pair of trail shoes the first time you go out in the woods. A normal pair of running shoes is fine for most conditions, assuming it's dry. Please be careful. Running trails does take practice. When we talk about becoming a good trail runner, a lot of it is developing that really good proprioception or the awareness of where your body is in space. And that's really important to know. So uh, yes, you can go out and do some trail running in your regular street shoes. Just please be very careful. However, if you find that you're spending a lot of time in the woods or you are enjoying it and starting to get wet and rainy or whatever it is, yes, trail shoes might be a good option for you. And that's, that's going to have to do it for today because I am literally out of time. Like I'm way over on the time I budget for myself to do these episodes. I was 100% serious when I said that I could actually talk about shoes forever and ever and ever. Uh, and I, I feel like I just barely scratched the surface. 
The most important thing for you to know is that shoes are a highly individualized choice and there is no characteristic or set of characteristics that are better or worse than another set of characteristics because it all depends on what helps you be comfortable on your feet and what helps you achieve the goals that you want to achieve. But yes, there are such things as appropriate versus inappropriate shoes for what you're trying to do. It would be entirely inappropriate to wear track spikes when you're, you know, training on the road. It would be entirely inappropriate for you to wear carbon plate shoes for, you know, your easy runs. That's just, it's, you know, I mean, I guess you can. I wouldn't though. I mean, really, if you're made of that much money, I don't know, get somebody to make you a custom pair of shoes. Go, if you have enough money to spend on wearing carbon plate shoes in your everyday training, pay somebody to find the perfect pair of regular running shoes for you. How's that sound? <laughs> Anyways, um, I hope to continue this conversation with you offline. I hope to have guests on in the future who can nerd out about running shoes with me. I'm, I'm, I'm always learning more. That technology absolutely fascinates me. So if anything, I hope that you have learned a little bit more just about running shoes because as always, knowledge is power. And if you have the vocabulary and the knowledge to describe the thing that you're looking for or interested in that will only help make you a better, more informed runner going forward. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find me on Instagram at running explained or at my website, runningexplained.co. If you have a question you'd like to have answered, you can submit it in my stories every Monday or email me at elizabeth at runningexplained.co. That's E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H at runningexplained.co. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.